Good morning. Welcome to Bethel's Hoot Nanny this morning. That was great. Uh, got a lot to talk about this morning. We have a fun morning. Uh, we get to not only sing these excellent songs, some which are very old, some which are new. We get to go to the ancient text from the ancient of days, right, and learn about our God. Uh, we've got some fun and some good illustrations from Paul himself that I'm going to try to wake up. And then we get to end with one of the greatest illustrations and symbols that we as Christians hold dear, which is baptism. We have one this morning and we have three next service, if in case some of you wanted to stick around and see uh, three youngsters get baptized next service too. So uh, lots to be grateful for this morning. So let's pray and we'll get right to it. Father, we uh, acknowledge that you are uh, here. You are present in this place by your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, that we do not have to invite you to show up, but that you have been here all along. And this morning, Lord, we draw near. Uh, We draw near to you with full hearts and with rejoicing because of what we have in Jesus Christ. The triune God, you have secured an amazing salvation for us, saving us completely and to the uttermost. Father, thank you for your patience, your grace, and your mercy for sinners who rebelled. Thank you for giving your son. Jesus, thank you for surrendering your life and submitting to the Father and for pointing to the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you come as the self-effacing member of the Trinity and taking up occupancy and residence in our sinful lives and yet to bring us back to the form in which our Father has made us. What an amazing salvation. And so, Lord, even as we gather and we sing songs, we know we're just touching on the praise and the glory that we'll enjoy with you someday. But we, re- we rejoice in it now. And we pray that as we go to the text, that you would be our teacher. Holy Spirit, we sit at your feet and we ask for your instruction. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we're going to wrap up this glorious chapter that we've been in for a while here. So 1 Corinthians 15, there's a handout in your uh, uh, bulletin, and the title of today's message is, A Body to Die For. We're going to have some fun with that. Um, This past week, there were a couple of exciting announcements. Uh, You might have heard some of them. Uh, News that really affects the interior of Alaska, especially those of us here in Fairbanks. Uh, The first one is uh, Alaskan Airlines and Virgin Airlines are forming a merger, $2.6 billion merger. I don't know know what that means, right? Okay, this next one maybe is a little more uh, interesting to you. I was uh, at the uh, Fairbanks Chamber of Commerce luncheon on Monday where it was announced that two F-35 squadrons will be coming to Isleson Air Force Base arriving in 2020. Now, that, that's kind of a woohoo. <laughs> uh, we can all use that. And um, when these kinds of big announcements come along, I think we, we as the citizenship, as the audience, as the public who are hearing them, uh, you know, we just kind of want the practical questions to be answered for us. What are the implications for me, right, for these kinds of things? I forgot to put up the second one. There it is. That's a good-looking plane, isn't it? Um, (laughs) We want to know, what does this mean for me? So whether it's an airline merger, you know, how is that going to affect my in-flight comfort or the cost or how how far I can go and and where? 
for the second announcement about the F-35 squadrons that are coming, we just asked the questions basically, well, how many will be coming to Fairbanks? About 3,000. Uh, when will this happen? How much construction will happen? About $500 million in the next few years. Uh, what impact will this have on schools, property values, local economy? Uh, and how will we as a community care for uh, these soldiers and their families that are arriving? These are the kinds of questions that we begin to ask. Uh, in similar fashion here, the Apostle Paul has just finished making some big statements in chapter 15 of Corinthians. Uh, and he is now, th- these statements of course are about, the, about bodily resurrection. And he was trying to help them see that this isn't a peripheral doctrine of no, no consequence or of no import for them. He's trying to get them to see that this is really important. This isn't just what theologians call pipe and beer talk here. This has implications for you. You, you need to think about this. These are important theological uh, points. And they're also very, very practical. And so verses 35 through 58, which we're looking at this morning, uh, really deal with the practical implications of bodily resurrection that Paul has been speaking about. And so now, if you will, we kind of go to press conference mode. Paul's made his announcement, and now he's going to deal with what might be the questions that would come at him. And he makes it very clear throughout the passage that we're looking at That these resurrected and glorified bodies that we have to look forward to will be bodies to die for. Bodies to die for. I said we were going to have a little fun with this. You, You may not be able to tell. Look at the face. This is Pastor Mark Holmes. You know, under the, you know, the short pants, the baggy short pants and the clothes he wears on Sunday, you, you might not know, you know, this is what's underneath, right? It's not. Uh, sometimes we get a little squirrely in the office and we decide to have fun with pictures, so. Pastor Adam, body to die for. Where's Josh? Where are you, man? There you are. You ready? All right. There you go. This is, it just fits, too. I, and I promise you, I didn't direct this one. I just gave, I just gave Amanda a license, and um, here it is. This is going to be my new homepage on Facebook, you know, this, No one will break into my house. And I, I just want you to know, too, I could look like that if I wanted to. <laughs> I just don't want to. So I'm just keeping it real here. That's what I'm really real. Um, and <laughs> I got to move past that. All right, let's, let's leave that behind. Uh, we should auction those off maybe as a fundraiser for our expansion project. What do you think? <laughs> Hopefully it would be our wives that are the highest bidder. Um, After having passed the, the 40 threshold this year, the, the idea of bodily resurrection to me, uh, I start thinking about that a little more. That I, oh yeah, that's going to be okay because I'm, I'm finding that I'm only 40, but I'm on the downhill slide. Like my best body years are behind me. I'm feeling it. And, and um, I know some of you feel the same way. In fact, some of you, and I'm trying not to look at anybody, but some of you need a new body more than I do, you know? 
that's just the reality of it here. And, um, and while we say that in jest and, and, and in laughter and whatnot, for many of you, that's not a laughing matter. Uh, because maybe even recently, you're realizing you've got some real health concerns. You know, the test results came back and they weren't what you had hoped. Uh, something you feared is now really, really present. Uh, uh, some of you are fighting cancer. A number of you. We've, we've been talking. Uh, some of you are wrestling with things like diabetes and circulatory issues and autoimmune disease. And the plain and simple truth is your body doesn't work as it was intended. And you're faced with just frailty and, and mortality and And it's not just those uh, who are getting old, but uh, the young find it as well. Um, And so more and more, maybe you're aware of your own mortality. And here in this passage, Christians find great encouragement. Real practical motivation for the here and now. And so we're going to turn now to the Apostle Paul's press conference already underway. Verse 35 of chapter 15. But someone will ask, uh, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed. Perhaps of weed or something else, but God gives it a body as he has determined and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Now, first of all, this questions, these questions seem a little, they seem reasonable, don't they? Well, wait a minute, what kind of body? How is that going to happen? These seem like reasonable questions, and uh, so we, we might wonder, why does Paul kind of shame the hypothetical person for asking it, right? How foolish, he says. Interesting. And, and in fact, this is a hypothetical question from a fictional person and all of it really coming from Paul himself. So why does he shame sort of the straw man here that he's, he's put up here? The reality is that the question that he kind of puts out there is, in fact, shrouded in disgust. It's not just doubt. It's not uncertainty. It's, there's a bit of disgust wrapped around it. Uh, You almost have to read this, and I'm going to do the best I can. Um, You almost have to read this in valley girl tone. I'm going to try. The way it comes off is something like, oh my gosh, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Ew. Like, gag me, right? This is kind of what, this is, this is the demeanor in which the question is, is posed. It's not maybe uh, as apparent in sort of the English rendering, but if you get the NVG, the New Valley Girl translation, you can see it really, really clear. Uh, Paul is not just dealing with the how factor. He is dealing with the how factor, but primarily what he's dealing with is an ick factor. It's this grossness of, what are we talking about here? Resurrected bodies? Ew. That's disgusting. That is a, a reanimating of a corpse. Is, this makes us squeamish. And uh, you, you would need to know that, that resurrection, bodily resurrection, is a bit of an undeveloped idea to Paul's audience here. Um, and we've already presented some of this, some of the difficulties for those coming out of a pagan background, those who have been influenced by Plato and sort of the Greek philosophy of the day. Uh, even those within the Jewish community, this was still a bit of an underdeveloped 
uh, doctrine. Resurrection and the afterlife was known of, but not clear. Let me give you a few examples, and you can chase, you might just want to write down the references so you can look at these later, because I'm going to move really quick, but the prophet Isaiah uh, declares uh, a bodily resurrection in 2619, Isaiah 2619. He says, but your dead will live. Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Job makes a declaration as well in Job 19, 25 through 27. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Uh, David expressed a similar hope in 2 Samuel 12, 23 after his illegitimate child with Bathsheba had died. And he makes the the claim that he's dead now. Why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? No, but I will go to him. He will not return to me. And Jesus, when speaking to Martha after uh, the the sister of Lazarus, after after he had died, she responds to him with an awareness of a future future resurrection in John 11, 24. And she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last days. And so what I mean to show you is that we can look back into the Old Testament and we can find places where resurrection, even bodily resurrection, are taught. They're there, but it was a bit undeveloped and, and it wasn't fully realized and understood and it certainly had been challenged in its day uh, by some, specifically the Sadducees of the religious leader. Remember this in Sunday school? They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. I know you remember this because I do, so... So even the religious leaders challenged this kind of thinking and it was challenged among the Greeks and the pagans alike. It didn't sit easily with the Corinthian community. And so the idea of bodily resurrection was a bit of a hurdle for Paul's audience. And at first what he needs to do is almost to create a space in their minds where they can imagine it and imagine it in its beauty as a possibility and as a good thing. And that's our first point, which has been up there for a while now. Imagine the possibility of a beautiful, resurrected body. Uh, Again, overall, Christians were sort of repulsed by this. They're thinking a resuscitated corpse. They're thinking resurrected bodies. That sounds more like zombie land than like heaven. That sounds more like a nightmare or a horror show. And so Paul's trying to tear down their false fear of something ugly or gory or disgusting and trying to help them transition to a picture of beauty and glory and wonder. So he has some work to do in our minds and in our imaginations and to see this as a hopeful and a good thing. And so in order to do this, Paul uses a set of analogies which are always good because analogies help us to get from something known to something unknown. And they form a good instructional bridge. And this is what the Apostle Paul does. And he begins uh, with the analogy of a seed. And so he wants us to consider the beautiful everyday transformations that we might see around us. And he begins with the seed. So it's springtime. I brought a few things in here. I'll try to do this in a way that you can all see, which is nearly impossible. Sorry. (laughs) Imagine. You'll have to come back second service and sit on this side. (laughs) So I have a packet of seeds here, and I just, I grabbed pumpkin. These are from last year, so, in our home. 
pumpkin seed is maybe big enough that I can hold it up and you can see it. Right, everybody? At the same time, squint. There it is. <laughs> A pumpkin seed. And so what Paul is telling us is that we see things like this around us every day. We understand when you take this entity, this little thing, this seed, and when we bury it, we sow it into the soil. And it goes down, and it goes in, and it stays. And it germinates. The miracle of germination sort of occurs. And a new kind of life, a new form of life, emerges from the seed. It is still the same thing. It is still what it is. The entity is the same. But it now bursts forth in a new form. It's what it was, but transformed into a new creation. And fortunately, the illustration breaks down a little bit because I put in a pumpkin seed, and most of you know this is a tomato. <laughs> um, that's, quite a, that's quite a transformation right there. <laughs> but in the same way, just as a seed is sown in one way and raised to another, so Paul teaches us that our bodies will be sown, put into the ground in one form, and raised a different form. Without the confines of their prior existence and limitations of time and space and sinful degradation. We'll still be the same person. The same identity. The same entity. But in a new kind of bodily form. Uh, a body to die for. And so again, Paul is just helping them deal with sort of this ick factor, the shock of hearing about a bodily resurrection. He's wanting them to see it's not just the reanimating of a corpse, but a new kind of creation through transformation. Uh, Gordon Fee, who is an excellent scholar, also identifies about Corinth, and we've talked about this a little bit, that one of the things they were dealing with, this is a fancy word here, two of them, an overrealized eschatology, Okay. And basically meaning they thought they had arrived spiritually. The Holy Spirit was within them. They were seeing his power manifest in their lives in lots of, in some, dramatic ways. And their thinking was, all we need to do is to shed this bodily husk. And here we are. We're well and good and we're as God wants us to be. You might say it this way, that the Corinthians had too high a view of their present situation and too low a view of the future glory that God had in store for them. And Paul's trying to reverse their thinking, and that's a good take-home for us because I think that's really a human condition. We think much too highly of ourselves in the here and now, and we don't think at all enough or greatly enough of what God is making us one day. This passage helps us um, correct that. The second analogy that Paul uses to help the Corinthians and us with this idea of bodily resurrection is that he wants us to consider the levels of glory in the present world. Now, you've got to pay attention or you're going to get this wrong. So, uh, put your best thinking on right now. Verse 39. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds, another. And fish, another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars 
another, and star differs from star in splendor, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. Okay, there's a lot going on here. Let me start with what he's not saying. First of all, when he says heavenly bodies, he's not talking about ghosts, okay? He's talking about the sun, moon, and stars, just to clarify that. And secondly, Paul's not suggesting here that there is a multitude of levels in the afterlife of glorification, okay? You may be familiar with Dante's Inferno where he describes the, you know, seven circles of hell, right? Sort of in his parable or his allegory. And so Paul's not doing the reverse here. He's not describing seven circles of heaven or something like that. He's simply trying to help us to see that there are different levels of glory. There is an earthly plane and there is a heavenly plane. There is this kind of glory and there is this kind of glory. And he's wanting us to see that we recognize this every day all around us here. Uh, Paul would invite us to look at the creation around us and to see that there is a variety of glory on here, in earth, here on earth. And so if I could Alaskanize these verses here, verses 40 through 41, I would say it's something like this. We can travel out to the Goldstream Valley and we can look at the river that's running through it and say, this is beautiful. There is an intricate glory and we can take it in and we can appreciate it. And you can travel up to the Yukon. And you can see a greater glory, something more powerful, a little more magnificent, something with some force to it. Uh, You can go over uh, and uh, fish in Belaine Pond here. And I've taken my kids over there and we had a a blast. We've caught some little... We caught some little rainbow trout, and uh, thank you, Gary, for putting those in there. I know (laughs) Gary's our resident fish planter, and uh, uh, we had a lot of fun doing that. Um, But you can also go down to the Kenai River, right, when the reds come in. There's a little bit of a greater glory. Uh, You can go up to the top of Murphy Dome, and you can sit up there, and you can look over the Tanana Valley and say, wow, that's great. What a beautiful view, right? You can also go and sit at the base of McKinley and know in your mind that those peaks for most of us are unreachable and its glory is unrivaled. So we know this experientially as we look all around us. We know that there are levels of glory. There is this kind and there is this kind. And Paul is simply trying to Help us lift our gaze to see that there is a greater glory in store beyond even the goodness that God has graciously given us in this life. We cherish it. We should take it in. We should drink deeply of it. We should appreciate it. But all as a point to take our minds and our imaginations forward to what God has in store for us. The Corinthians have become content, maybe even consumed with sort of Life here and now and the body here and now, which is interesting later on in his second letter to him that we have in the scriptures, Paul refers to our body as a tent or a tabernacle, if you will, as the King James has it. And you remember what the tabernacle was in the Old Testament when Israel came out of Egypt and they were out in the wilderness. The tabernacle was a portable and temporary sanctuary. The tabernacle was a place that they loved and that they enjoyed, and eventually it gave way to the first temple, and then to the second earthly temple, 
And even those earthly temples are just a facsimile or a picture or a copy of the heavenly temple, which we wait for. And just in the same way, our earthly body, it's this, this tent, this tabernacle. It is a temporary body, a husk, a seed to be sown. It's a loner. It's a rental. And it's going to get upgraded. Uh, I was traveling down to Oregon here a couple weeks ago, and I, I got to attend the CB Northwest um, Annual Enrichment Conference right on Seaside. And I uh, pulled into Portland Airport where I had a, um, a rental car. So I went to retrieve my reservation, and they had made an error. And um, uh, they didn't have my car for me. So they had to upgrade me. So I had a Toyota Corolla uh, on reserve. And then they began to say, well, I'm sorry we don't have a Toyota, but uh, we have other cars. You know, what would you like? And I said, oh, I don't know. What do you got? And he said, well, we have a Chrysler 200. And I went, oh. I don't like Chrysler. You know, they're right up there with cats in my mind. That's another story. <laughs> if you buy a Chrysler, you're going to buy it twice. That's my promise to you. You're going to buy it twice because you're going to fix everything at least one time. That's a, I'm not trying to go there. But anyways, the, so they're kind of working through the different Chryslers they have. And I'm just like, oh, I don't want to drive a Chrysler. And, uh, and then they said, but well, we, we also have a Dodge Charger. <laughs> so I got upgraded. And I got to drive this 2016 black Dodge Charger up and down the coast of Oregon on my enrichment conference. <laughs> and I, um, I tell you that I, I, um, I didn't speed. Um, I just got up to the speed limit or the flow of traffic very quickly. <laughs> and I enjoyed it. It was fun. I was upgraded. And I was also told the guy next to me had the same problem. He was trying to get into a new car and and he joked about, oh, I'll take the Maserati. And they said, actually, we have one. I hope I have another error next time I go down. <laughs> they got, I got upgraded. And Paul's point here, too, is that we're going to be upgraded. Get past this ick factor of bodily resurrection. You're going to be upgraded. It's going to be glorious. You don't need to think zombies or some gross horror show. There is a beautiful transformation where we will be given bodies which are fitted for eternity. Bodies to die for. Um, the other thing I would say about this, and I'm a little bit off of the text and just in my own imagination, so take it with a grain of salt here, but I would say this. We're going to need a new kind of body. We're going to need a new kind of body to dwell with God most high in all of his splendor and his glory. Um... The Bible says that nobody can see God and live. And Moses, of whom we would say was God's closest friend, could only look at the trailing, passing glory of the Lord. And even in that, God shielded him in the cleft of the rock, right? And so I just want to say we're going to need new bodies to gaze upon the splendor of God and his glory and to dwell with him for all eternity because this whole thing just won't do. You think of the seraphim surrounding the, the throne. Remember, they have six wings. They're only flying with two of them. With the other four, they're shielding themselves from the glory of God because it's so great and magnificent. And what I want you to think is not of our lowliness, but I want you to think of the greatness of our God, which we sang about, 
and the bodies that he will fit us with to take in his glory and to dwell with him. Uh, Let's keep going. Verse 42. This is just poetry that comes out here. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. And so Paul brings us in his argument, he, you know, he's kind of telling us, this isn't just pie in the sky here. I'm not just waxing on and on about something that sounds good. I have a precedent. You know, lawyers argue from legal precedent. Paul is arguing here from historical precedent. We have a resurrected Lord. We have one in whom we can, to whom we can look. And we can see how his resurrection helps us to consider our future resurrected bodies. And I would say this. We can be thankful that God gave us more than just the written word, which we cherish. But he gave us the living word, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, who literally fleshes out what we see in the written word. And so we can look to, even as we, you know, Paul kind of is inviting our imaginations to go here a little bit about how we'll be upgraded. Uh, But he he helps us also to ground that a little bit and causes us to look at the person of Christ and to imagine and to remember his resurrected body as it's a bit of a guide for us to think about what ours will be. So just a couple of things to think about Jesus' resurrected body. Uh, a couple of things. Jesus ate. Yes! <laughs> That's good. But he didn't have to. He was visible, Right? But there were some times when he was unrecognizable even to those who knew him best. Uh, He passed through doors. And yet he could be touched. He could be physically present. And yet he could also just sort of physically appear. And all of this before he was glorified. This is just his resurrected earthly body, but not yet his glorified body. And and even more than that, the resurrected Christ, uh, short of his glorification, I think helps us to imagine if it was that good while he was here on earth, what is his glorified status? Uh, We're going to get to that more and more. Second part here. We are assured of a glorious transformation. Verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. If you're an underliner in your Bible, underline that word. He repeats it later on. We will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be 
changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And so as we kind of move into the second section here, we be, Paul begins to help us with what we might call the discontinuity of our present bodies with what is to come. He's helping us to, you know, you might say raise the roof a little bit of our expectations. And he wants us to see there is absolutely a transformation coming. And we will be a new kind of being. Change is a really an interesting thing, and, and I'll be really candid with you, really honest. There, there are those that I do ministry with around here in the church, the pastors and staff and our families, and we have this conversation from time to time, which is, you know, for me, I've been here 14 years um, shepherding at this church, and, and sometimes I ask the question, do people really change? Um, I'll say this, it's usually very slow. Painfully slow sometimes. And, uh, you know, people oftentimes, I find that we, we really want them to grow and mature in the Lord, but they have this default that they kind of drift back into. Change, I think, happens progressively, but really, really slowly. Um, but the kind of change that Paul is talking about here is rapid, instant, in a flash. Imagine a photographer's flash and an instant transformation. Not just bodily, but in all that we are, to be all that God made us to be. In a flash. Uh, And as a pastor uh, who's been grinding away with some of you year after year, I look forward to that flash (laughs) in your life and in mine. And in mine. Because I know my own slowness uh, to change even more than I, I know of yours. Uh, and so I look forward to that. And so in a flash, we will be without the lingering consequences of sin and the baggage of our flesh, fleshly limitations, and we will be what God made us to be. And just in case we had any misgivings about, will it be good enough and will we really like it? Or will we just be bored? I, I would say this. Jesus continues to live in a glorified, incarnate state. He is a glorified man. The God-man, glorified. But he retains humanity in a glorified way. And let me just say this. If that's good enough for Jesus for all eternity, I'll take it. I'll take it. He didn't cease to be human. He persists eternally in that glorified state. C.S. Lewis has said in his book, The Weight of Glory, uh, At present, we are on the outside, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the pleasures we see, but all the pages of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. We will put on glory, the greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. Those are good words. I want to read to you another part, also from C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. Um, He begins by uh, kind of asking you to imagine a parable of a woman and her son who are thrown into a dungeon. 
And uh, you know, they're walled in, and they just have a window of looking out into the sky, but they really can't see the outside. It's so far up in the air that they really can't see much except light coming in. And so the mother, who is ever hopeful that they will get out of this dungeon, is trying to constantly sketch for her son on paper and with pencil, which she has with her, pictures of the outside world to give him hope. And then one day, uh, she realizes that in his mind, he simply sees the outside world as a sketch with lines and on paper and sees it only as a two-dimensional thing. And, uh, and, and, and just as she reveals to him that the world is, outside world is not all about lines, for the child, his mind sort of bursts and he can't imagine it anymore because what is it? It's all that he has to think with. And he starts off with that and he takes us to these, uh, these statements here. So with us. We know not what we shall be, but we may be sure we shall be more, not less, than we were on earth. Our natural experiences, sensory, emotional, imaginative, are only like the drawing, like penciled lines on flat paper. If they vanish in the risen life, they will vanish only as a pencil line vanishes from the real landscape, not as a candle flame that is put out, But as a candle flame which becomes invisible because someone has pulled up the blind and thrown up in the shutters and let in the blaze of the risen sun. We shall be more and not less. It's good comfort there. And I want to come to the last point here which is this. To ask sort of the so what question of the passage. Why does Paul give this? And the point is this. This hope is meant to encourage us in this life to be faithful. It's meant to encourage us to persist and to keep on keeping on. Verse 54. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, for all of us who are in Jesus Christ, for those of us who have faith in him and have been reconciled to the Father by his sacrificial death, death is just a doorway that we walk through to greater glory. And, and he means for that to encourage us with these commands. Stand firm in the here and now. Let nothing move you. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And your labor is not in vain. Those are good words of encouragement. And, and in closing, I want to go to Tozer. And I've closed more sermons with this quote than maybe anything else. But it's just right. There is a glorified man at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, faithfully representing us there. We are left for a season among men. Let us faithfully represent him here. Uh, We have a glory that is coming to us. Uh, We're going to get bodies to die for. And uh, I'm looking forward to that.